So by the time we made it officially to market, we had our first two turns of our beverage seller pre-sold. So we knew we had 35 homes as soon as we hit the market. A couple of weeks after that, we crossed 50. Uh, pretty soon after that, it was 100. I think we're in 152 as we sit here today, 13 months later. Um, so, you know, sometimes you got to just be comfortable taking a flyer. This whole industry is a flyer. Nobody has a case study. There is no best practice. It's trust your intuition, trust your heart, trust yourself. No one's going to do it for you. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Matt Melander from Levia. Matt, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, boys. Nice to meet you both. Yeah, looking forward to diving in. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm looking to looking forward to holding down the, the West Coast with some East Coast boys here the, today. Yeah, and just for the record, Matt, your location currently? I am in Marblehead, Massachusetts, so just north of Boston. Another East Coaster in the building, and the war continues, Kellen. <laughs> I, I think we're starting to push it. So, yeah. Matt, so for our listeners that aren't familiar with you, can you give a little background about you and how you got into the cannabis space? Absolutely. Um, classic example of right place, right time. Uh, I spent the majority of my career in the financial services business, and that was February of 2018. Uh, and I do uh, the, the original founding team of, of what is now Levia. And they had this idea, actually a co-packer for cannabis products and, and manufactured goods with a focus on beverage. Uh, and and kind of, that was business plan A. And now we went to 2021 on business plan quadruple Z and, and really focused more on our product. So uh, it was a very long, windy road of regulatory challenges and capital constraints and the global pandemic and you, you name it, we dealt with it and we just kept plugging away. Love it. So I guess before you kind of got into cannabis with your background, was there any hesitation to kind of move into the cannabis space? For me personally, no. Um, always weed was around people were smoking cannabis since the time I was in high school. So I wasn't really like new to it. I wasn't something I was a huge participant in. Doesn't mean I, I wasn't pretty well versed in it. It wasn't like it wasn't like now where I called myself a daily communicant. It was back then. It was kind of like, all right, it's Sunday and I don't really want to have trouble sleeping tonight. So maybe I'll just smoke a bowl and go to bed. But um, no, it wasn't so much the industry that, that concerned me more than uh, working for a, a bulge bracket investment bank, their compliance and regulatory rules, which are still the same today, given the banking law. Um, they were definitely, when they found out what I was doing, it was, um, Let's just say that was the last day I was there. Yeah, a little little stigma there. So let's talk like early days. I know you you, you shared with us kind of the, the pivots throughout the years. Obviously, with the global pandemic, that's never the best time to kind of start up a business in a federal legal industry. So take us through those early days, you know, getting started. What was it like? What was the experience like? And, and what was your day-to-day like? Yeah, absolutely. So those very first days, as I said, it was kind of February of 18. I found out about this, started kicking the tires a little bit, looking at the models, saying, hey, you know what, doing my own research. Um, by June, it was really more, all right, is this, does this have legs? And if so, what is it, what's going to take? And actually the first investor myself. So I, uh, I put my money where my mouth was, said I've always wanted to be involved with something from the beginning. 
cut a substantive check of my percentage of my personal net worth and said a said a couple Hail Marys and said, let's go. At those early days, it was it was two parts. It was it was trying to raise capital in a in an industry that has no banking access to like credit or anything. So um, that's obviously a challenge. Then the other part, which I actually still believe to be the hardest part of the industry is where do you find zoned real estate to be able to operate a business? It's finding a needle in a stack of needles. So most of my days were spent driving around aimlessly through the podunk towns of Massachusetts because they all had said yes. Uh, Massachusetts is unique. We have this thing called town meeting where when the regula- when the regulations opened up the adult use market, cities were mandated to have X amount of recreational licenses. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, it was some math equation that was full-time population versus the amount of like package stores equaled X amount of rec licenses, right? So those were, those were available. But then in the town setting, it went to town meeting and had to pass public vote. Uh, not surprisingly, most of the more affluent Boston bedroom communities said no. We ended up looking at 13 different towns and having like substantive conversations with, with town officials and, and administrators and whatnot. Found a perfect location. It was 20 square foot former paper mill in, in uh, Rockland, Massachusetts. That's kind of what those early days were like. It was just hitting your head against the wall going, come on, someone give us a chance to succeed. So it was actually December of 18 that we finally got a lease negotiated and signed and found a piece of property. Um, and then from there, we, we started the next phase, which is zoning and regulatory approvals, site plan approvals, environmental conditions, all of the nitty gritty of property development. Um, all the while, still kind of iterating, trying to build a product, understand the beverage segments growing. It, it was very much um, a spider web of, of continuous improvement on a daily basis. And, and I have to say, looking back on it now, it was probably the scariest time of my life. Uh, professionally because there was no no certainty of a future paycheck, but it was also hands down the, the most liberating. And, and now I look at myself and I'm like, man, I would go back and do that again. I love it. And I appreciate you sharing that. And sure, the capital raise has got to be extremely challenging and then finding a location, extremely challenging. And then while so at the same aspect, are you doing the R&D? Is beverages kind of the origin of the business plan? Because you know, you, you talk about how those are the two hardest parts, but once you get the location, it's time to hit the ground running. And then I guess there's got to be some thought process. Is is anyone going to buy this product? <laughs> well, you never know that one until day one when you hit the market. So it was very iterative. By saying R&D in those early days, we were learning about what everyone else was doing. There was a lot of nano emulsions. It was a lot of using these big bulky things called sun and, and needing ear protection and products would come out of solution. Things would stick to the sides of cans. You never knew what the potency was going to be. And we were doing all of this with a soda stream and above a garage. And like, you know, you're, you're doing very limited product development. Also given regulatory environments, like can't send this stuff out for testing. Really. You're, you're, you're stuck in a little bit of a, of a circular reference. With that said, I mean, we, we kept focus on those three pillars of co-packing with oil-based products just as, as one revenue source. And then this idea of our own brand. And then the, the third wheel would have been like co-packing other beverage companies that were out on the Western part of the state. I mean, those early days, we got introduced to the folks from Keep Cola. We got introduced to the folks from Hi-Fi Hops, which is Lagunitas. I mean, those were the OG, if you will, of the space. Um, yeah, I still remember one meeting with one of those groups where they told me, stop now, you're never going to succeed. So, uh, um, 
no, but nobody's doing this east of Denver and this market in Massachusetts is just growing. We're going to, we're going to keep fighting. Um, and it was, it was just very, very iterative. And, and over time, things changed. We met different partners, product changed, got a lot simpler, got a lot cleaner. Governor Baker banned vaporizers. We took that as kind of the word of the wise. Hey, you know what? Hard to call yourself a wellness brand if you're, if you're outlawing all vaporizers. So, you know, it, again, things happen and you just have to be willing to bob and weave. And some days you're the punching bag and some days you're the guy hitting the speed bag. You just got to know when to duck. Yeah, that's really well said. So kind of continuing on that, did did anyone on your team have cannabis experience? And if they did or did not, did you have outside partners to kind of help you navigate the landmines, which is cannabis? So my primary partner, Troy Brosnan, is uh, he's a cannabis savant, is what I like to say. He's been interfacing with the plant for about better part of three decades now, maybe a little more. Uh, he was the the cannabis wisdom of everything we did. And we're kind of like a yin and a yang in terms of if you had, if you needed to go into a boardroom and, and try to raise capital, Troy wasn't your guy. But uh, if you needed to sell to the, the the local mom and pop dispensaries who actually believe in, in cannabis culture and, and, and the, the sanctity of the plant and the health benefits, he had a story that was would resonate. And I think that's part of our success is that we, we got the best out of each other and, and, um, circumstantially it's it's still kind of how we do new product development it's how we we did everything with levia until frankly we, we ended up actually selling the business about um early february of, of this past of this year so so i want to talk about the three different products achieve dream and celebrate kind of get the origin of why you, you have three and if there were others early on or if it was kind of started with one and then added the two more Honestly, my kind of story on that is even the veteran consumer, they kind of will get comfortable with what they know. And, and there's a lot, I mean, there's constantly new genetics coming to market. I, our goal was, look, let's simplify, 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 and let's create brand archetypes that kind of speak to the feeling of what someone is going to experience when they drink one of these products. Achieve is our sativa line. We do our best to kind of keep the genetics consistent, but you know there are supply and demand constraints that you, you got to play with. So that one, it's get stuff done, work or play. Um, the original flavor for that is, is raspberry lime. Um, celebrate, that's our hybrid line. It's in my opinion, it's the perfect alcohol replacement. Kind of go to a backyard barbecue, hang out with friends, be a little chatty, uplifted, but um, also like naturally relaxed. That one is. Uh, Originally lemon lime, and then we also do some seasonal flavors that we run in the hybrid vein. Uh, simply, I like to say, no reason to leave the middle of the fairway right now. This is still the early, early days of, of this segment. So for those flavors, we've done a cranberry lime, a pomegranate punch. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, we released our spring seasonal, which is an orange blossom. Next one, which is going to be announced in the next couple of days, but I'll, I'll, I'll leak it here, is uh, a mellow mule, which is a ginger lime flavor. So that, that's been really fun is to continue to kind of work with local, with our flavor house, continue to develop and innovate really cool flavors because when you're working with the water, you can make it taste however you want. So you, we just want to keep making it fun and, and, and continue to convert new consumers. And then thirdly is dream, kind of wind up the corners of your day. If you want to watch a movie, relax on the couch, get a good night's rest. Um, that one comes in jam berry, which is just our, our mixed berry flavor. So um, kind of long story short on why we did it. It was purely simplification so that the can of curious as if, you, as we like to call them, wouldn't be staring at the 
iPad or the TV screen and the dispensary and be like, Oh my God, what am I looking at? What am I doing? Keeps it consistent. We continue to expand to new markets. We're going to hold those archetypes together. Similar that when you go from California to Boston, Bud Light's Bud Light, we, we kind of want to create that same understanding so that um, consumers know what they're getting every time they, they crack open a can. And a quick question. Uh, how did you guys settle on the flavors for Sativa Hybrid and Indica? Did you try to pair those with kind of your staple strains that you use for the Sativa uh, beverages? Or is it kind of just, uh, you want to walk us through that thought process? You know, actually, Kellen, this is going to be another place where you're going to have to put a uh, feather in your cap to the East Coast boys because we have this thing in Boston called Polar Beverage Company, which is the, okay. the OG of OG seltzer companies. Uh, they've got every flavor under the sun. Uh, their cranberry lime flavor is like flat water, the only thing I drink during the day. Um, <laughs> we just tried what was right in our backyard. So Polar's been around... I, I think since the 1800s in, in, in Worcester, Mass. They've got everything from, I mean, you pick a normal flavor from lime to, I think they have one that they do during the summer that's called Unicorn Kisses. I have no idea what goes into Unicorn Kisses, but you can't <laughs> find it in the supermarket. So it sells really um, So we just actually went off that. We tried to just reverse engineer what was right in our backyard for the exact same reason that initially we were only going to be sold in Massachusetts. Everyone here knows Polar. You can't really go this without finding it. So... I want to talk more about the formulas. I'm so intrigued by that process. So like when you're doing the kind of the mix and matches, trying to understand, like, I mean, that has to be kind of daunting, right? You're, you're trying one and there's got to be a thought process where it's like, can I drink three or four of these? Or like, are you, you kind of experience it for like one and then kind of moving on to another? How, how does that work? I think some of that just comes down to the regulatory framework of what we were operating under. So in Massachusetts for a consumable product, a single serve maximum dose is five milligrams. Uh, so it's relatively light and it creates a sessionable experience. So for us in product testing, as I said, we did it out of a soda stream. So for me to pour myself an ounce or two of, of 15 different flavors and, and kind of try them, swirl them, sometimes spit it out, sometimes swallow it, it didn't, it, it, you know, you knew what you were getting into. And and so that was really where we we came from. The, the potency, just we went with what the the market allowed. So yeah. I know some of our competitors have gone lower and done two and a half milligram products. Others do tens. I personally, I think somewhere in that two and a half to 10, the lion's share of the market needs to be. We as consumers, a culture that's built around single substance psychoactives, primarily in beverage form from caffeine and coffee to booze and the, right? Like we understand dosing ourselves against that. If you give somebody six shots of espresso, they're going to be shaky and they're not going to be happy. Well, guess what? Next time they're never going to have six. You give somebody a shot of one fifty, a couple of shots of one fifty one, their throat's going to burn too. They're going to not be in a great way either. So it's that it's that product understanding and consistency and rep repetition that kind of built it for us. Now, like anything, everybody has a different tolerance to cannabis. There's somebody who five milligram product. They'll turn their nose up at it and say, not for me. I'd have to drink two liters of this before I feel anything. Okay. Frankly, you were never my target consumer. My target consumer is that person who's new to this or that consumer who's like, you know what? Five milligrams is great. I can have a few of these in a social setting. It's a healthier alternative. And I start making better life choices. And oh, by the way, what's the best benefit? No hangover. So 
It was, again, like so much of the story is fluid. I mean, I mean that pun intended because it's a water-based product, but like it really was, we, we knew the restrictions were so astronomical that we needed to be comfortable with what we could get to participate and just being in the market was good enough. So has there been a constant dialogue of, of potency and, and changing formula and, and going stronger, weaker, again, Budweiser to Bud Light equivalency? Yeah. It, has it gone anywhere? Absolutely not. We're, we're comfortable where we are. We think it gives us the best market position to, to attract the most new consumers. I have a quick question. Was, uh, so like Red Bull and Monster, right? They like have like a single flavor beverage line. How much influence did like some of those other beverages have on how you guys kind of settled on three different flavors? Was it just the Sativa Hybrid Indica model? And you were like, we're going to just stick with these. How much did like the outside beverage industry influence your guys' decisions? We believed in the concept and the brand and the strategy. Then it was, hey, guess what? There's three kind of core cannabis, if you will. Let's make one for each. And then you know, doing limited release was always version 1A. So that's why we do the seasonals, selling more units four months into market than the, than the biggest producers in the California market are selling. That still holds true. That's testimony to the sanctity of the product. The consumers like it. Might as well give them flavor differentiation and over time continue to work through that where, I mean, there's a very real chance that someday we have an achieved variety pack, right? Where it's all sativa based, but it's for four different flavors or a celebrate variety pack, or there's a mix and match, right? Where you get two of each and, and you get all the different effects and you can go home and depending on what you're looking to do that day, time of day, what you're up to, if you're going for a hike or if you're mowing the lawn or you're sitting watching a movie, you know, you can pick mix and match to kind of match to, to get the best experience for whatever you're doing in your own life. That's going to be so much fun for you guys to develop all those flavors on the line. It's very fun. As I said, we do it with a soda stream. So we do hyper prototyping all the time. We're constantly evolving flavors. Um, we've got a great flavor house. I'll give a nod to the West coast, but uh, sovereign flavor house out of Santa Ana, California. They're excellent partner. And we do it. That's actually probably my favorite thing we get to do is, is we tell everyone, everyone gets to be a part of the creative process here. There's no monopoly on good ideas. So when the products go to the dispensaries, I guess early on in the development phase, how did you know it was going to be successful? Obviously, you, you want to see those numbers move, but there's got to be some traction that takes place in some of the marketing challenges and a new product to the space. When did you get the feeling that you were on the right track and how, how quickly after? I don't know if I still, if, I don't know even if I believe that yet today. Our delays were also in some ways our benefit. We, when I got involved in the market in, in summer of 2019, and we didn't hit market till February of 2021. Um, with that said, we, we were out there talking with dispensary partners as new ones came online. We were getting our names out there. So by the time we made it officially to market, we had our first two turns of our beverage seller pre-sold. So we knew we had 35 homes as soon as we hit the market. A couple of weeks after that, we crossed 50. Uh, pretty soon after that, it was 100. I think we're in 152 as we sit here today, 13 months later. Um, so, you know, sometimes you got to just be comfortable taking a flyer. This whole industry is a flyer. Nobody has a case study. There is no best practice. It's trust your intuition. Trust your heart, 
trust yourself. No one's going to do it for you. And then go get to work. How important is kind of that uh, was the the initial consumer interaction? I know like in Washington and like other states, uh, they do like vendor days, right? So like they set up a booth and you can come try the products or talk to like the the experts on that specific brand. Is that something that's actively practiced in Massachusetts? And how important was that if it is during the early so, stages? So we, we leaned in and relied heavily on them. We do, do our sales people get out there and table at these places on a weekly basis. You better believe it. But for the most part, yeah, it, it was, uh, I think it was a product whose time had come because it makes all the sense in the world as a universal consumption method. And we were the, power first mover here in Massachusetts that we were the first one launched. So people were looking for it. I mean, I tell this story often. The very first delivery we made in February of last year was to a, a small dispensary, Fine Fettle in Raleigh, Massachusetts. Just so happened that, that as we were offloading the truck, there was a woman in there purchasing something for her recreational consumption. And she was like, oh, what's that? Said, oh, this is a new beverage. It's new to the market. And since then, has been basically buying a case a week and doesn't drink alcohol anymore and swears by this. Something as substantive as that, where someone really makes a full wholesale lifestyle change, that's on you. Um, and I think it's such a great representation of the product because it is it's zero calorie, it's zero sugar. I call it guilt-free fun. And people start to, to use it for whatever their reason. I've heard folks from superstar world renowned musicians who have battled alcohol for 50 years who have found this and now they don't battle out their alcohol problems anymore to local folks who again have struggled with with substance abuse in the past or whatever the case may be coming to us out of the blue and being like i feel normal at a at a party in a social setting because i like the can is kind of like that social crutch it really is I mean, we never we never set out to do that. That's just the glory of this project that it's taken on a life of its own. And you know, where was a conference in Massachusetts, Nikan, this a couple of days ago? More people than not came up to us to just say thank you. And it's like again, never in a million years was that anticipated. Honestly, I'm thankful that I, I, we've been fortunate enough to create something that that has this kind of love for it. And and truly, it's just beginning. I mean, we're still just in Massachusetts. It's so exciting. And when you talk about you know, that social crutch, I think that dynamic is so interesting because there's so many people who lean on alcohol for that social setting because they don't know that there's another alternative out there. And when you wear on top of it, the no hangover marketing, it's hard not to consider your options and go, hey, if I never have to be hungover again, but I can also feel comfortable and I have something in my hand in those backyard settings, because you know, when you take an edible or you're smoking, some people don't want to smoke. But if you take an edible, you still don't have that social crutch like you were saying. And I think that's so perfectly well described. And I think specifically here in the East Coast, mainly for me in New York, I think people are going to be blown away when they first try those products because it is a game changer for them. It is a replacement for alcohol. And I think it's going to change a lot of people's lives. We've realized as we've gotten more involved in this, smoking is obtrusive. Hard yes. stop. I don't care whether it's a pre-roll or if you're packing a bowl or a bong rip or it's a vaporizer. Whatever it is, there is some sort of thing that you're exhaling into other people's vicinity. Great. We also have, I mean, I'll use Massachusetts as an example. Sometime in the early 90s, we outlawed smoking at public places. That is never coming back. 
I, I don't, you can be the biggest supporter of cannabis and you, if you try to disagree me, with me on this one, we can have a very heated de- debate because it's just simply not happening. You're not going to be able to spark a joint in a restaurant and get away with it. It's never going to happen. Transfer that to the, the consumable side. I mean, look, I, I, I love gummies. I think there's, they're great. But in a social setting, when I throw it in my mouth, I'm going to chew it for 20, 30 seconds. I'm going to swallow it. And then I've got this really delayed onset Sweet party, man. What am I supposed to do for the next hour as I wait for the effect? Again, you're going to eventually, what you're going to do, you're probably going to go find some, like a beer or something to just hold something in your hand. <laughs> that's exactly because that's the happen. truck. That's exactly now, what's going to happen. <laughs> magically, we kind of paired those two things together. You put it in a can format. So one, you actually get to pace your own dosage. So like not everyone is going to crack this thing and chug it down. Like some people will just sip on it and it, it, it's got, it'll work with them over time they're holding it that creates the crutch. And Oh, by the way, it's fast acting. So in the same, in the same call it 10 to 15 minutes. that when you're taking a drink of, of, of alcohol, you start to feel it wash over you. That's the onset of the effect with this. So you get that benefit. The feeling comes in quicker. It's not like an edible where you're sitting way to 90 minutes before you feel anything. Oh, by the way, that's where everyone gets to the, ah, it's not working. I got to have a second one. Oh no, I had too many. Um, you get to pacers. It gives everyone that kind of equal playing field in in a very well understood dynamic, which is sipping on a drink. Can you kind of pair the dosing? For example, for me, I like to do let's say ten to fifteen milligrams, but would I assume three beverages? Is that kind of how you would do calculation, or is there more variables in play? It's self education. You know, start drink one. Obviously, you're like, all right, I know I'm comfortable at fifteen milligrams when it when it hits feel free. You probably drink three of them and feel where you're at. The beauty is, is that, you know, if you, if you want to have another one, go for it. If you go, yeah, I'm in a perfect place. Odds are maybe you switch over and drink like a regular water. Like your the world is your oyster and you need to, to create your own consumption methodology that fits for you and your own potency standards. I have a question randomly. I have no idea the answer to this, by the way. Um, it's just a thought. Oh God. <laughs> is... Is cannabinoids, are cannabinoids more bio, bioly available in liquid than they are in a solid? So like if I eat a, a gummy that has 10 milligrams and say I only absorb 80% of that because it was in a solid, is that, do you know the answer to that? Is that something you guys have explored at all? Um, I I don't know the true scientific answer. So again, I will cage my answer and say our understanding of it is more predicated on the science than it is the um, delivery device, whether that be in a solid or in a in an aqueous form, we work with a pharmacist who has is a special specialist in drug delivery systems, uh, which creates that advanced bioavailability in onset. Frankly, we have done some R and D with other form factors, and that onset stays consistent. So um, there's, I think, more more studies need to be conducted by that young lady and her team to be able to prove out the efficacy of, of that science. But given federal illegality, getting those studies greenlit in university settings or in, in programs is a, is a lot more challenging than it needs to be. But short answer is down to to the, the science and the technology that, that a manufacturer is working with rather than anything that has to do with whether it's like a hard good or chocolate bar or oh, right. water base or whatever. 
Yeah, that is one thing, though, that the East Coast did have a huge advantage from a timing perspective. Because, like, initially, all the beverages that came out in Colorado uh, were not very good at all. Like, they... And they were literally commercializing brands had products that it stuck on the side and all these things, and it just destroyed brands left and right. And so the beverage industry was really challenging in Colorado in the early days. So I'll give the East yeah. Coast a feather for doing it the right way, at least. Yeah, you know, and, and I think, frankly, we looked at all of the, what I call version 1.0 products yeah. that were in Colorado, Washington, Oregon, California, wherever they may be. The trick is, in those early days, the best way to mask the cannabis flavor was to make really high sugar content beverages. So I personally, and I think again, speaking back polar beverage company, like that's a zero calorie product. Like you can, you can drink a 12 pack of the seltzer water and it, it's just the same as drinking a bunch of tap water. So it just tastes better and it's got some bubbles. <laughs> um, I don't necessarily drink a lot of soda in my personal life. I don't think I would be someone as a consumer who would lean in on a very high caloric sugar content soda-based product because that was a masking agent. So the sugar is the masking agent. That's me personally. It also and doesn't help with wellness, right? Like the high sugar is terrible for wellness. So Correct. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, it's all those pieces kind of play together. You, if you can create something that is, in our case, zero calories, zero sugar, people can pick it up with confidence and say, you know what, this isn't going to impact my health goals, weight loss goals, exercise goals, you name it. If, again, it fits for everybody. It's the universal, in my opinion, it's a universal stigma breaker. It fits everything we understand. And if we can do it in a way that is naturally healthier than alcohol. Now, look, we all know alcohol is bad for us. Yes. The difference is you can't take, no matter what, you can't take calories out of alcohol. First person can figure that one out. Give me a call. I'd love to do business with you. But um, <laughs> I think it's relatively impossible. And here's a case where it's a plant-based so that you actually can make it naturally calorie-free. A lot of people are going to see this podcast episode and, and realize your team's incredible success in a very, very short amount of time. Can you share a story, a fact, or another concept that would shock someone about the journey and the process that your team undertook? We went to market. We had $38,000 left in the bank and I was in a lockdown hospital ward. My wife had just had twins. Uh, so don't give up on yourself ever. I think that's probably the truth is I called my business partner from Brigham Women's in Boston. And I said, Hey, have we heard from the state yet? The answer at that moment was no. I was like, well, uh, we better because we're going to run out of money next week. So, you know, the, just again, it, it all comes down to the entrepreneurial journey is very much. You have to believe in yourself. No one else is going to do it for you. Once we hit market, it's been a roller coaster. I mean, you're not supposed to tell me a, a, a hard good story where you, you launch and you sell in 364 days. It doesn't happen when you go from zero to number one in the category in the country in a matter of six months. So like, I think we're currently number two. It's, you know, like that, that sort of truth is, is very much the holy moly I always joke, there's no case study for this industry. Well, I'm pretty sure somebody's going to write this case study for business school at some point because it doesn't add up to what you're normally taught. Yeah, it's, a, it's exactly that. It's, I think it's a Steve Jobs line, something to the effect of like the people who are going to change the world are the ones that are crazy enough to try. I mean, yeah. You just got to be crazy enough to try. And it's great hearing you, you know, you share that story, that personal one also with like the limitations of the finance and then to go because of scale, because once it's popping off, now you have to go back internal. You've got to kind of scale your operations probably pretty quickly 
which is one of those where you're you're operating, you know, let's say first or second gear, and now you got to really drop it down to fourth pretty quickly. So there has to be like an internal look where it's like, all right, like how are we going to get from zero to actually 100? So better lucky than good. I have to be very honest and say we we shot for the moon from the very beginning. In the summer of the fall of, of 2020, before we made it to market in their comment, when they saw the size of our facility and the amount of tank space and seller space we had, are you trying to make beverages for the whole country? I was like, well, no, it's just, we figured why not big as possible. The worst case scenario again was not that we couldn't find somebody's home. They, they obviously would have come and worked with us. They were looking for a place to get their product in Massachusetts. Just, you do the best with what you got. In our case, how do we throttle up? Most of our operations team, our career brewers, they all kind of saw the writing on the wall. They're like, holy moly, this is a growth industry. Think of, of the, call it 10 people in our operations beverage staff. Six of them come from careers in, in the brewing industry. So they understand the systems and the mechanics and what's going on. They understand warehousing and logistics. And it was more uh, a turn to our sales team and said, hey, can you guys keep up? Uh, and we know what we can produce on a weekly basis. We know what the testing delays are. We can turn... I think we, we turned somewhere around 1.5 million units last year, February 16th to December 31st. So you go as fast as you possibly can. You believe in each other. You build a team where it that you go to that building. It's more family than it's a company. Everyone supports each other. Everyone has each other's back. That's what cannabis needs to be, the industry. The industry needs to be built for something. It can't be this money grab. It, like You need to actually realize that we all came from a different place in the past. I used to do something different. I wasn't, this hasn't been my career forever. Yes, there's commercial success, but there's also personal success, which is like, it's a better quality of life. You're a better version of yourself. It's that kind of buy-in that we all made. And I wish that was the universal standard of the industry. I, I'm afraid it's not, but that's really, to our, that's the story of why Levia succeeds and why it has the following, especially locally that it does is, the team cares about each other in a way that there's something to be said about some of the, the kind of less tangible parts of what we do. So let's talk about the successful exit to air wellness. When did they reach out? How did that conversation start? I can't imagine they were like, Hey Matt, we're looking to partner up, you know, take us through, you know, that early reach out conversation, then how long the process takes to let's say finalize an actual deal. Yeah. Thankfully, that's what I used to do in my past life. So I was at least conversationally competent in what to expect. As I said, we hit market February 16th. I started fielding buyout offers by April 1st. Wow. Whoa. And again, when you have newborn twins at home, you're in a startup, you're running on fumes and running on empty. And I probably, frankly, my synapses weren't connecting. So I was a lot more open with sharing than I, I otherwise would have been. But we had five public MSOs reach out and that's called that six to 10 week of our life cycle period. And you start having all those conversations and they're very high level. And in the case of error, Mr. Sandelman is, is the chairman. He and I had one of those phone calls that I'll never forget it. I can tell you exactly where I was sitting and we got along on all the right philosophical levels. Again, it's about the product. It's about family. It's a mentality in the future of this industry. And, you know, John's son was actually the one who introduced us. He, he had a call with my business partner and I sooner than, than, than when John called. So, you know, you start to realize like, all right, there's some depth there. And so from there, so yeah, probably early May, we 
started negotiating a, a true deal, put a, a letter of intent together. From there, it becomes the real nitty gritty of due diligence on their part, some due diligence on our part, trying to better understand the, the operating business and what they're doing and the acquisitions they've made, the markets they're going to, what our opportunity is, how we're going to leverage those markets. And it becomes a massive back and forth of let's make a deal, really. What, what, what were our non-starters? What were their non-starters? Making sure that we did this in the right vein, which was very much collegial and understanding that this beverage segment's in its first inning and someone is going to create PepsiCo or Coca-Cola or Budweiser. No one's done it yet. Do we think we can? Yeah, I, I, I will bang my fists on the table till now until King, the cows come home and say exactly that. So fast forward, obviously Levy is continuing to grow and succeed and find new customers, build, build, build. We get to mid-August, we're kind of at that goal line of uh, we have a couple ancillary things that needed to get solved. So we signed at that point a binding letter of intent that was basically the, if you ask me, that was like when they got down on one knee, marry them. And then uh, we actually signed the purchase agreement. I signed it from my bed at about 1030 the night of September 3rd, which was Friday going into Labor Day weekend. So I was actually able to take the last three days of summer and say, all right, I can take a breath. And you, you show up on Tuesday and, and you get back to work and, and the kind of integration components start at that point. It's got to be a really interesting conversation to have. Let's say the five MSOs all kind of flirting with you and you internally kind of battling that internal belief. Is now the time? Should we continue to accelerate? But again, you're in the driver's seat. So it's got to be kind of flattering for you when they're kind of giving, are they pitching you on the positioning within their brands? Are they giving you the future? What is those conversations kind of like? It's all of the above. You do have to sit there and go, hey, let's make the strategic determination of what the path forward is. It's best for us. And, and I, my management style is uh, not, frankly, management style as much as it's an altruistic style, which is you do for the good of all concern, always. And, and the products can do no harm. Those were the two binding principles of Levia. So you sit in a room and, and, and everybody kind of has their opinions of what we should do. I think in any other market, without the federal challenges and, and banking challenges, we would have had a lot more optionality and, and, and things that we could have done strategically in those early days to kind of say, hey, look, the concept works. Now let's go build this ourselves. Well, I said, I threw my hand up first and I said, guys, exhausted building one facility and getting one license. We don't have the capacity or the time to try to, to replicate this across the country. The best thing to do is find a partner who's willing to move as fast as we want to go. Well, my partner, Troy, and I went down to New York. We sat down with, with John at, at his home and he sold us on three things, culture, speed, and belief in what we were doing. He certainly has the speed. They have the capacity and speed to go fast. And culture matters because for me, as I said, it's a family first. It's, it's not more, you need to, again, management 101. You put yourself last. And you support the people around you who give you the opportunity to succeed. And you're going to, in so doing, you're going to create a culture that creates winners and supports itself. And everybody picks up for each other. That's the kind of business that I always wanted to be a part of. And, and we said to John from the very early days, Levia is a representation of who we want to be in the world. Um, and, and again, and that was what we did. And, and that's where we're going. And that's where we, we aspire to continue to, to bring that to fruition every single day. 
without naming any names, were you fielding any offers from outside industry? Uh, no, no. I, it was all industry players. I subsequently, once we had kind of figured out where we were going, yes, that happened. But not in those, not when it was still like an open-ended dialogue. Sure. Look, yeah, there, there are a, a who's who of big beverage family operators that have been around forever. They, they did find their way to get in touch with us that went to come one way or another. Again, that's awesome, but they don't understand cannabis. They, they, they did something else and that, that was where their success stemmed from. Uh, stick with what you know. Don't don't just follow that shiny object, or you're you're probably going to overinvest in something you don't truly understand. And you know you can't sell something you don't understand. Perfectly said. You can try to, you can try your best to build a business, but if you don't actually interact with the product yourself, it's going to become it's going to come across disingenuous. And uh, you know that that's that's human nature. Since you've been in the cannabinoid industry, what has been your biggest misconception? The lazy stoner mindset that we were all taught in elementary school is not real. Some of the most successful decorated business people I've ever had the privilege of knowing, they use cannabis on a daily basis. I mean, we're talking Fortune 50 CEOs running global conglomerates who literally we've gotten introduced to have been like, oh yeah, no, I, I actually prefer this. But it's been so stigmatized forever. It's like, that's that's the part that needs to go. We got We all collectively as an industry need to break the stigma and, and let the truth come out. It's... Uh, it's nothing more than a smear campaign that's 120 years old. So over time, it becomes people take it as the truth. And, and frankly, I think the statistics show otherwise in every recreational market. This does not create additional youth appeal. This doesn't create a bunch of people living in their parents' basement playing video games, eating Doritos. No, there's really, really, really high-functioning people out there who this plant actually helps them. And we need to honor that the fact that you know, these, these traditional cultures who have been practicing plant-based medicine for thousands of years, they were probably onto something and it behooves all of us to just bring that to the forefront. Amen. It's well said. Amen. Before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass onto the next generation, what would it be? Believe in yourself. Take the jump. You're never going to know if you can do it until you try. And you'll be amazed at how much more you can accomplish than if you're just willing to take the risk. And if you fail, you learned. Absolutely. All right. Prediction time. Matt, do you think the beverage category will overtake the flower market? And if so, what year? Oh, um, I want to say yes, naturally. I think it's a tremendous lift from where we are. We're roughly like 2% of universal sales. Look, I, that question, can I reframe the question to you? When does federal sure. deregulation happen? Because it's my story that a cannabis beverage should be on every draft line in America. Same way that what used to be all, all beers now have hard seltzer options. At that point, do I believe that we can overtake the flower segment? Yes. So What, what year will that be? Yeah. 2030. Kellen. I'm going to go later out. I do think eventually it does overtake flour. I mean, you just look at like tobacco, right? Like everyone right now is going to, turns out when you smoke something for 50 years, inhaling hot paper probably isn't the healthiest thing for you. So I think in, in, after we have like generational use cases and those things, you'll see more education focusing on different or alternative ways to consume THC or CBD or whatever cannabinoid you prefer. But I think it's going to take time, right? 
I think that, I mean, our generation um, and even the older generation, they didn't know any anything else from a cannabis perspective besides just flour. So I think that it's going to take time. I'm going to say like 2050, but I do think eventually it will overtake it. There's just more people consume liquids and alcohol than smoke. You know what I mean? So I really think that it'll be uh, the number one product market. Yeah, to continue on that, I'm going to have to agree also. I think with the millennials choosing uh, cannabis over booze, I think that's going to be a massively growing segment. And whenever you can market as no hangovers, it's really hard to compete with that. And I think as, let's say, the alcohol drinkers kind of adopt into, let's say, a replacement beverage, I can't imagine that those numbers are currently built into some of the statistics that you see out there from a category standpoint, because it's almost impossible to forecast someone giving up their daily consumption of booze for that cannabis beverage. And when that does, I think people are just going to be blown away and shocked by those categories. And I had recent conversations. I was at a wedding and I explained to someone the importance of like, hey, I don't want to drink this anymore. I wish I could have it in a cannabis form. And the guy was like, that exists? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, how come I don't have that? And I was like, well, where do you live? And, and when he told me, I was like, well, that's exactly why you're in a state like New York, unfortunately, that is so behind that once these ideas come, I think the mass messaging and the products that you've produced, Matt, I think are just going to blow people's minds for what the possibilities can really be. So Matt, for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to learn more about your brand. Where can they find you? Uh, yep. Yeah, best way to find the Levia products is, is the Levia website, which is uh, www.levia.buzz, B-U-Z-Z. Um, there is a store locator feature built in there where you dump in your zip code and, and boom, there's, there's the closest retailer. Uh, on all social feeds, it's Levia Brands. Uh, and then also um, just the Air Wellness corporate website. So airwellness.com. We'll link them all up in the show notes. Thanks so much for your time, Matt. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Tune into a major journey podcast today, where guests take listeners on journeys and immerse themselves in the roller coaster ride both in and out of the cannabis space that brought them to where they are today. Throughout our conversations, guests share valuable lessons that they've learned along the way that listeners can use to empower growth both in their personal and professional lives. Check out a major journey today on all major podcast platforms.